Welcome to Grind and Flow, the creativity and self-care podcast. I'm Chuck Moore, and right now you're listening to the unmistakable sound of a pedal steel guitar. The sonics of this instrument are incomparable, and mostly associated with traditional country music. For me, there's something irresistible about those distinctive note bends, the complex and shifting harmonies that occupy a unique space in my music fan heart. Right now, you're hearing sounds from a modern master, today's guest, Bruce Bouton. Since the 1980s, Bruce has played on a staggering number of landmark tracks by platinum-selling country icons like Reba, Shania, and, of course, Garth Brooks. Bruce is one of the legendary G-Men, Garth's personal wrecking crew of sidemen who consistently nailed it in terms of craft and success for decades. Bruce has also supported other giants like Taylor Swift, Kenny Rogers, Ricky Skaggs, Keith Urban, Brooks and Dunn, etc., etc. He's also an accomplished producer and songwriter. Bruce was so gracious with his time, sharing his career path, personal journey, and insights from decades in the music business, with plenty of lessons you can apply to life in general. And certainly my biggest takeaway from Bruce was his commitment to learning and self-improvement, even after decades of success and acclaim. At almost 70, Bruce continues to put into practice, still adding to his 10,000 hours. So, Musicians Hall of Fame member Bruce Bouton, let's go. So you've heard to the steel, the instrument, as a beast. What does that mean? Well, it's just a, it's a crazy instrument. It's kind of a bastard instrument. It's a big machine. Uh, it's got 10 strings on it that... Um, the pedals raise and lower the strings and you play it with a slide bar so you don't really have frets, you've got fret markers. It's just a lot to it because it's, it's, the strings all are constantly changing. You hit a pedal and, and all of a sudden a root becomes a third or a, a fifth becomes a sixth or whatever, just the tone things change. So you have to navigate all this stuff and you have to keep pressure and you have to keep accuracy on it. But I mean, I was so lucky. I mean, my whole life has been a series of fortunate events. I mean, I got the steel, and then there was a guy across the river who owned a music store, and he was a steel player. And so I went over there, I was the hippie kid, and I was the science experiment for all the old, you know, country steel players that lived over in the south side of Richmond. So they would show me stuff. And then I was introduced to this legendary player named Buddy Charlton, who had played with Ernest Tubb and recorded all those amazing instrumentals with Leon Rhodes. And he had left Nashville and was teaching steel up in Oxon Hill, Maryland. So my buddy Jay Jessup and I would drive up every week and split gas and take steel lessons from this guy. You know, one of the greatest steel players that ever lived was teaching lessons at a music store. And I was lucky enough to be able to go up and study from him. And uh, he was just ruthless about making sure my arm was straight and making sure my thumb was right. He'd go, man, if you don't get that thumb around, you're never going to get great tone. You're never going to get good tone. So he taught me, you know, I never learned any of his instrument, his legendary instrumentals. I never, ever learned them all completely. A couple years later, he said, man, you know, you never learn everything. You, other guys come in and they learn everything, but you never learn it, but you find parts and you figure out how to use parts in your day-to-day -day playing. And he said, that's better, because uh, I was never that guy to learn a bunch of instrumentals, but I might learn one little transition. But steel was, was really hard. I mean, I spent um, 
you know, back in the day, I, I jokingly say I didn't practice as much, but when I first started, man, you know, I was, I'd practice five, six hours a day. I, I read an interview with Pablo Casals, the legendary cellist one time, and he was 80 years old at the time, but he was playing with the Washington National Symphony, and the Washington Post had a long interview with him, and they said, well, you were notorious for practicing all the time. Do you still practice? He said, yeah, I still practice four hours a day. Well, you're Pablo Casals. You're still, why do you still practice? What do you practice? He says, well, sometimes I practice one note. And I just play one note and figure out different strings to play one note on and different ways to turn my bow and, and different ways to use the flesh on my fingers and see what the different sound is. So that stuck with me, stuff like that. So I'd, I'd, it was a beast, the steel was a beast, but I'd sit around a lot of times and just figure out, get that note, see what that note sounded like, see what happened when I put more bar pressure on, see, you know, all that kind of nuance. And, and what I've learned lately, you know, when the pandemic came, I started practicing again, like the rote practice. And Paul Franklin, you know, the guy we've talked about, he was having an online course, but he had these little exercises that he said he did every day. And he did them really slow to a metronome. And you do them really slow, but I started doing them just because, you know, there's nothing else to do. There's a damn pandemic going on. And all of a sudden, I started getting dexterity in one of my fingers that I had never had before. It took months, but being in my late 60s, you know, going in and going, wow, this is just amazing. And yeah, steel is a beast. It's still a beast. It plays me sometimes. Okay, quick sidebar. As Bruce walks us through his career journey, just assume if you hear a name you're not familiar with. This is likely an important behind-the-scenes Nashville musician well worth Googling. For example, people like Paul Franklin or Danny Gatton, folks that casual music listeners might only know by the many records they played on. More importantly, it's worth noting the seismic good fortune that resulted from Bruce and these folks coming into each other's orbit. Personally, I'm fascinated by the intersection of hard work and sheer luck, be it from God, the universe, happenstance, what have you, and I'll continue to explore this in future podcasts. As an example, you'll hear in a minute how a chance meeting in a laundromat led to Bruce's decades-long collaboration with one of the most successful recording artists of all time. I started out, I moved to Nashville in 1978. I knew I had to be here because this, this was the epicenter of country music. And this was, you know, as a steel guitar player, it was, you know, either here or Texas or Los Angeles. The urban cowboy thing was going on. And uh, I'd kind of run the gamut in the D.C. area where I grew up played in a bunch of bands. So I moved down here and I moved down here in November, which was a really bad time to move to town because all the tours are shutting down for the winter. Um, and back then Nashville only had two high rises. Broadway was a war zone. It was full of uh, uh, brothels and uh, all night gambling casinos. And I mean, not gambling casinos, but backroom gambling halls and, and late night clubs. and. Uh, one or two live live music venues. The Grand Ole Opry was falling apart because they had moved out to Opryland. But I, I came to town and um, was lucky enough. I got a job working for the Showbud Steel Guitar Factory. So I worked. Mm. I worked in the factory that winter, and I got offered a job in a club in Mississippi. So I went down to Mississippi and played that club uh, six nights a week. And I, you know, I heard Buddy Emmons was playing in town. You know, with Danny Gatton, who Danny Gatton was a legendary guitar player from Virginia who had encouraged me to move to Nashville. 
Um, so I came back to see them play, and while I was there, I met this incredible steel player named Terry Crisp, who got me a job with Dottie West. He was quitting without notice, and he needed somebody to start Friday. And this was like on a Tuesday or something, and so I quit my job down in uh, in Mississippi without notice, which was, I, I, in retrospect, you know, probably wasn't the right thing to do, but I was on a bus going to California, and I was on the Dottie West Kenny Rogers tour. And I wasn't a great steel player, uh, and it didn't last long, because Dottie went, went in a different direction, and she quit using steel, and also it was a good excuse to get rid of me, because I wasn't that good. Uh, and I came back and worked with a couple Opry acts, and, um, uh, during this time, I had a friendship with a legendary guitar player named Ray Flack, and we, we always, he was doing other stuff, but we'd been roommates for a while when I first moved to town. And he called me one day um, and said, man, I just did a session with Rodney Crowell and this guy named Ricky Skaggs is looking for a steel player. Um, you need to, as I think Ray said something like, you need to get in his face every opportunity wow. you can. And I was working with this woman named Lacey J. Dalton, which was... Uh, she was getting a lot of push from the labels, and we were playing all over the country, traveling in Winnebago, doing a lot of TV. And I met Ricky on, on a couple occasions at festivals, and he was playing with Emmylou Harris, and I introduced myself. So we're sitting there in 19, late 79, maybe, or 1980, somewhere around there, and he comes over to my house and auditions me to join his band. And um, he offers me the job, and I, said, well, can I sleep on it? And I'm surprised he just didn't say, eh, don't worry about it, I'll find somebody else. He said, sure. And I called Steve Fischel, who was playing with Emmy Lou Harris, and I told Fischel, I said, man, Commander Cody's looking for a steel player, and this guy, Ricky Skaggs, and, and Fischel said, man, don't be stupid. When you wake up in the morning, call Ricky Skaggs and tell him uh, you want this job, because it won't be the hot band, which was the name of Emmy's band, but it'll be a hot band because I just spent a year working with him, because he was he took Rodney Crowell's place in Emmylou Harris. Okay. So I called Ricky, and I, I don't know how I had the balls to do it, but I said, uh, can I play on your record? And I'd never really ever done a recording session. I'd done a couple, couple little things, but I, I didn't know anything about recording. And two weeks later, um, I was in cutting the first record with him. So I toured with Ricky. I toured with him for four or five years. Uh, toured with Mel Tillis. Um, the session work started picking up in the late 80s, so I quit touring. Well, I toured with Foster and Lloyd, um, you know, and then I, uh, in, you know, I spent most of the 90s in the studios, and then uh, in this century, which is very weird to say, um, I toured with Reba McIntyre for 11 years, mm -hmm. which was an incredible job, and um, during that time, I was also playing with Garth Brooks, um, when he was going out and doing um, his charity gigs and special events, I was sort of juggling the two. And then in 2014, I did his comeback tour, uh -huh. the arena tour. So I played with him from 2014 to 18. And I'm currently kind of enjoying a semi-retired life. I do some sessions. Uh, um, I consult with a few people and I, I I tour a little bit with some old friends of mine from the 90s. It was a band called McBride and the Ride, Terry McBride and Ray Herndon and Billy Thomas. And we, we fly to some place, we rent a Suburban and we tell jokes and laugh and 
eat food and go play. It all sounds so simple, right? Just show up and off you go. But that's not the case. Bruce talked about putting in his time on the road and clubs and not always finding encouragement. It's also intriguing to imagine Broadway in Nashville before it was what it is today. I remember I was playing in this club down on Broadway. There were only a couple clubs. I think I got $12 a night to play there. And I remember Paul Franklin and Johnny Cox and Mike Smith walk in, and they were the young guns. They were all my age. They were all in their early 20s, but they were all virtuoso players then. I mean, they were monsters. And I'll never forget, they walked in and they saw me and they were all sitting there with their arms crossed. And they hadn't even, I hadn't even gotten through a whole song and one looked at the other and one looked at the other and they talked and they nodded and they turned around and walked out. Well, what keeps you going? Uh, I just, uh, it was persistence. I, I mean, I practiced, I was annoying. Um, I would hang around and just, you know, I'd, I'd see people and say, hey man, I'll, I'll play with you, I'll do this, I'll do that, you know. Uh, just tried to put myself out there, and I guess I had something, I mean, you know, but I never worked as hard as I should have. I'll give you an example. I lived, you know, after I got the job with Ricky Skaggs, it was actually a pretty, um, you know, it was a salary job, and, um, and we were touring and having success. And so I bought my first house. And it was over in a neighborhood called Sylvan Park, which I probably couldn't even afford to live there now. It's, it's all gotten crazy. But back then, I think I paid $40,000 for this house. The great Dobro player, Jerry Douglas, lived across the street. But two blocks down the street, Mark O'Connor, Bela Fleck, and Mark Schatz shared a house. You know, I'd go over there to say hi. And Bela would be practicing all the time. He'd come over in the morning. He'd be, you know, just sort of in a sh shorts and a t-shirt, practicing, practicing. Go over in the afternoon, practicing, practicing. All those guys were playing, were practicing, you know, six to eight hours a day. Hmm. Jerry Douglas was practicing all the time. I was practicing some, hmm. but I was having a lot of fun too. I must have had a, enough intuition to be able to you know, hold a job and keep a job. I think they call it now, you know, everybody's got a term for everything these days. And I think now, you know, it, they have this term called imposter syndrome. And, you know, I, I think I suffered from it for a long time. You know, it took me, you know, took me a while to finally accept it. Well, wait a minute, you, you actually made a contribution. At what point do you feel like you put in your 10,000 hours and you're thinking, hey, I've got something here. I don't think I've ever completely reached that. I mean, um, I know what I can do. I know I can play in tune, and I know I can get good tone. I've spent a lot of time on that. You just all of a sudden, you know, you can do something and it sounds right. But I'm still, still trying to learn. It, I guess I'll be 70 years old um, soon. I'm practicing more now than I have in a long time. I've said that my life has been a series of fortunate events. I've got to back up just a little bit. I was sitting in a laundromat and I met this girl named Kathy Matea, but at the time she was a waitress. 
at Friday's and it was just me and her in this all night laundromat and she found out I played with Ricky Skaggs and everybody knew that it was so unique that the guys that played with Ricky also played on the records and she said, I love your steel plan. If I ever get a record deal, I'm going to call you. And you know, great. She was still a waitress. She didn't even have a record deal. Well, a few years later, I get a phone call from Alan Reynolds, the legendary producer who produced uh, uh, Don Williams and Crystal Gale and everybody, and he was producing Kathy. And I knew him, but I knew him as an icon. And Bruce, uh, I'm cutting a record on Kathy Mateo. I would like you to come in and maybe play some steel on it. And I flew back from Canada to get home in time to do this. And, and it was a song called 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses. And I didn't, I didn't play anything crazy on it, but it was a number one record. It was her first number one record. Alan called me a few years later and said, hey man, I've got a new artist named Garth Brooks. Would you like to come in and play? And I walked in and it was a song called Much Too Young to be this dang old. And I sat there and I think I did it pretty quick. I probably, but there were three other songs. I have two other songs and I don't remember the other two. One of them was, but that particular song and Garth was there and I looked at him and I said, he called me Mr. Bowden. And I said, have we met? And he said, yeah, you were on a demo session one time that I was on. And I was like, oh, and I didn't have a, I never met him. And he, Rob Hajek, his great fiddle player, came in and did some overdubs. And I remember Garth looked at us and said, you two are going to play on every record I ever make. And we kind of, afterwards, we laughed. Because the joke in Nashville, you play on a couple hit records by somebody and they call somebody else. But I've recorded with Garth for 35 years. At what point did you realize, okay, this guy isn't just successful, but he's a thing? I knew Garth, there was something going on there because I... I I always call it the X factor. Sometimes you'll just hear something and you'll go, I don't know what it is, but there's something happening. So I heard that when I, when I first heard Much Too Young on the radio, the first time I heard it, I said, this sounds different than anybody that's out there. But I still didn't, I could never have imagined the magnitude of his success. But I remember the first time I was talking to the late, great Ben Farrell, who was a, the promoter that worked with Garth his whole career. Ben and I were sitting, watching him at play at this little outdoor venue in the late afternoon. And Ben looked at me and said, what do you think, Bruce? What's, what's your opinion? And I said, man, look at his eyes. Because Garth would be singing and he'd be singing, and it looked like he was singing right to you. And, um, you know, as the time went on, I, I realized there were so many crazy, unique things about him that weren't were with anybody else. The guy's got a photographic memory. I've watched him in events. I've watched him where he recognizes somebody in the crowd, you know, because I, I was in, involved with leadership music and he was speaking one day to the class. This was in the 90s and he was like huge at the time. And he sees this guy and goes, man, how have you been? And he starts talking to the guy and said, yeah, I remember we, we met. Are you still working for... And afterwards the guy came up and said, I met him for five minutes. It's amazing, and, and Garth was that guy. I watched him when the labels didn't, when Clint Black was had all this money behind him, and, and Garth had no money behind him, and his manager, Bob Doyle, mortgaged his house, and they 
did their, start doing their own promotion. This was back before radio deregulation, so you had all these indie radio stations and all these night things. Garth would come home from working at the boot store and take a power nap and come in and spend all night calling all night DJs. And he remembered their names, and he wrote, you know, I'm sure he wrote down some stuff, but he would talk to them about their kids, and if they were playing Little League ball and they were pitching the next night, Garth would call that DJ afterwards and say, hey, did he win? You know, and back then, without radio deregulation, you had all these little stations and these little pockets so you could build a fire here and it would it would go over to this market and everything. You can't do that now as an artist. That, that doesn't exist. That There's no all-night DJs. But yeah, Garth was, and still is, just amazing thing and I've had the pleasure of being with him for 35 years and, and watching how he works and Reba this is the same way how they the ability to take care of everybody in a room but manage their time where they don't get bogged down I've been lucky I've, I've worked with some amazing artists and for me it's a great study to watch how they all handle their careers and there's a there's a work ethic uh, you know Something they all have in common. Shania Twain. I didn't. I don't really know Shania, but I was lucky enough to work on her record. People used to say, "Oh, Shania, man, you know, Mutt Lang was a guy who did bullshit, man." Shania would be in the. We'd, we'd spend all day cutting a song, and Shania would sing every take. She was there. She had ideas. She was saying, "What if we did this?" I mean, Brooks and Dunn, Kicks Brooks, Ronnie Dunn, man, they worked their asses off. Back in the 90s, we, we sold records. So there was, it was true trickle-down economics where everybody was selling millions of records. So publishers were getting tons of money and they were able to sign writers and have recording budgets. So there was a whole demo business here. And in the early 90s, 10 o'clock in the morning, on a, on a Monday morning, there'd be 25 sessions going on with five or six musicians. So a B-level player, which in Nashville, a B-level player is, is still an A-level player and the whole thing, but somebody who hadn't quite gotten into the master recording scene or whatever, he could make, make 40, 50, 60 grand a year doing demos. You worked hard. Sometimes you'd be, you'd be cutting you know, 10 songs a day, 15 songs a day, right. but, the bit, but the money was there. And so it was essentially a farm team. And some of those those sessions just were so cool because you'd, writers would come in, you know, these writers would come in and they'd have these skeletons of songs The songs would be written, but they didn't have anything. And the musicians would all just gather around and we would we'd paint the picture, essentially. It was almost an empty palette. And back then the great demo singers existed, you know, Trisha Yearwood would come in and sing uh, a demo, um, you know, We'd have to cut five songs in three hours. And, you know, the writers would hire people like Joe Diffie and, and Trisha Yearwood and Garth. And, but it was just so much energy, so much creative energy. And then it also was exhausting sometimes, you know. Right. And it was exhausting when you sometimes would get in situations and you'd have um, a, a kind of oppressive songwriter who was, uh, you know, very micromanaging or 
a weird publisher who got obsessed with an ending, you know, or bad songs. But you go, went to bed and got up the next day and did it again. That world doesn't exist now because there's no money. There's no money. Budgets have been slashed. We all used to get paid double scale in the 90s because everybody was selling millions and we don't, that's gone now. Labels have figured out that people can make these records at home um, on their computer. A lot of people, you know, especially in the pop world, you know, you get in the pop world and you, you have a track guy and a, and a few writers and they sit home and, and they make the whole thing and they maybe hire some guy to come in and play a little bit of guitar or something or whatever. I mean, this is the last town on earth really where on any given day, you can walk into a recording studio and see six people creating something. Okay, takeaway time coming up. But first, what a gift to make a living not only getting to create, but sometimes even impacting the culture at large. Even if you're not circulating in these kinds of rarefied spaces, I'm excited by what I think are helpful insights Bruce gained from his career that are well worth considering wherever you find yourself. See what you think. I think you have to go into sessions with a good attitude and you have to be unencumbered and you have to have gratitude every day. Oh my God, are you kidding? Uh, people are hiring me to come in and record records that the whole world's going to hear? That's a honored place to be. So you should be giving everything. You should have the demeanor where you can come in and, you know, free yourself and create, not bring your issues in to drag down the other players or, or whatever. Got to be able to play in tune. Your equipment has to work right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot at stake. And you have to be able to deal with it emotionally. Keep that stuff up. You've got to be clear-headed, man. You've got to try to be in shape. You've got to be cognizant of everything. You know, when I moved here, I was lucky because all, all of the, uh, as a friend of mine calls them, the Mount Rushmores of the, the music world were alive. I mean, all the pioneers, all the great steel players. I've been to Buddy Emmons' house. I've been to Hal Ruggs' house. I've been to Paul Franklin's house. I've been to Weldon Myrick's house. I mean, Lloyd Green is still, you know, he's my dear friend. We have, we have lunch. All these guys wrote the book on my instrument. They all played on legendary records. Everybody from Paul McCartney to Henry Mancini to Bob Dylan, Linda Ronstadt, all these stuff, all these guys did that, plus all the great country stuff. Haggard, you know, Jones, Cash, Wynette, everybody. These guys wrote the book. They invented the pedal changes. They were all there, and I, I remember getting advice. You know, I'd cut my first hit record with Ricky Skaggs, and I was playing the Opry, and, Lloyd Green came up to me and, and said, uh, Bruce, you know, Lloyd's very, very smart, brilliant man and very, uh, um, you know, precise and analytical when he talks. He said, Bruce, I, I really liked what you played. It was a very intelligent part and the tone and the intonation were very good. And I'm sitting there going, this is Lloyd Green complimenting me. And I kind of looked at him and I went, you know, I want to be you when I grow up. I mean, that's what I'm thinking, right. essentially. But I said, I said, man, what do I have to do to be a good session player? That's what I think I want to do. And I, I was still touring and I hadn't become a session guy yet, but that was what I wanted to do. I thought he was going to say, man, make sure you change your strings every week or make sure you use a JBL speaker or, you know, whatever, or always wear a, you know, a white shirt. And he stopped and he said, Listen to the words. 
And, uh, and I looked at that as a metaphor, you know, I mean, in life. The words to a song can take you where you want to go. But also the words that the producer might say, or the or words that the artist might say, you know, or the words that somebody in the room might say. I mean, it's just, you know, it's being cognizant uh, as a creator, you know, being cognizant of everything that's around you. You can't, you can't be thinking just to yourself. Paul Franklin gave me some similar advice one time, which was pretty amazing. Paul, I don't know if you know who Paul Franklin is, but he's... Tell us just a headline for those who don't. Paul Franklin is probably the most recorded steel player on the planet at this, by this point. He's, uh, oh my God, I mean, he was, when he was 17, 18 years old, everybody knew about him. And he's, he's my age, in fact, we're really close close uh, in age, but um, toured with Dire Straits, played, played with Mark Knopfler. I mean, he's, he's out now with uh, Chris Stapleton, um, but he, he and Vince Gill have been doing all those tribute albums to Buck Owens and Ray Price. I mean, and the stuff he's played on, I mean, everything from Barbara Streisand to uh, George Jones. I mean, played on all of George Strait's records for years and years. He told me, he said, man, if you want to be a session player, said, you need to learn where to stand in the room. And that was a great metaphor too. In the studio business, it's really kind of a weird thing because you walk in, man, and you walk in, you don't, it's a psychological exercise. And I'm sure it's like that in all businesses, but, but the studio business is especially uh, intimate because you've got to come in in three hours and you've got to try to capture the essence of this artist's soul and capture the song, please the producer, not piss off any of your cohorts. So you got to come in and you sort of got to gauge, is this a producer that's confident? You know, that if you go, hey man, I think I can, let me, let me just take one more pass at that, I think I can do it better, and he's gonna go, yeah, great. We like that. Or, yeah, spend a little time on that. Let's develop that part. Or is it a producer who sort of fell into this and for some reason he's a producer and really kind of knows what he's doing, but not really, but he's got the position? You'd pull that on that kind of producer. He's going to go, God, I hired the wrong guy. Learning where to stand in the room is being able to judge who's the leader in the session. Now, I used to have a problem at times with being in the room where I just did not like the way the session was going, the way the leader was leading it, you know? And, and, and so many times I would kind of push back a little bit. Probably had I really learned about the politics of it and the standing in the room, I would have uh, just realized this thing's gonna be over in a couple more hours, just suck it up, just do your job. I used to constantly second-guess myself and go, God, I mean, I wonder if that part's as good as Paul Franklin or what would Buddy Emmons have done? I remember one time, Sonny Garrish, she was another legendary session player. I mean, played on so many records. And he was just kind of, our, our career sort of overlapped, you know? He was the, sort of the generation before, but he wasn't the first generation. He was the 
one of the new modern players that came along. That, and he opened the door for guys like Paul Franklin and myself and Doug Moore and all these people to come in, Russ Paul, uh, Mike Johnson, Steve Henson, all these great steel players that all had have had good careers in town. Uh, Scotty Sanders. Um, but I remember Sonny and I won a Music Row Award. We tied one year. And I remember I was embarrassed. Why? Because I thought, man, Sonny is just so much better. He's so much better than me. I mean, I don't deserve to be on the same thing. So it took me a while. It took me a while to get, you know, now looking back, um, I hear those records, a lot of those records I played in the 90s, and they didn't suck. You know? <laughs> you could say that. I wasn't a, you know, just a, oh my God, I really, no, I was pretty confident. Don't get me wrong. It was just, you know, I realized something about making art and making, especially music. The way great music has been made in so many cases, it's about capturing the moment. It's about capturing the, uh, the vibe and everything, the spirit that's going down. There's always different ways to make great music, but at the end of the day, when, when the result comes from five or six musicians in a room and a great engineer and a great producer, it's magical. And it, sometimes all it takes is one note. Vince Gill said something about studio musicians being the only really true democracy in the world because the great studio musicians all come in to do one thing and that's to serve the song. And I work with musicians that are on the extreme right and on the extreme left and, and are this and they're that and at the end of the day, when they walk in the studio, all that stuff goes out the window and everybody is there for the same thing. And that's still my favorite thing. A good recording session, there's nothing like it because it's just, it's a true democracy. Everybody's in there working for the song and everybody's building their little parts and you know, all of a sudden you, at the end you have this product and you go, wow, that sounds really good. It sounds like a record. Yeah. Can you think of a specific or one of your more landmark recordings where that really came into play? Oh, I can think of many of them. I mean, all that early Skag stuff, that was a different deal. I had to work pretty hard on that when I think about it because I'd go, we cut the tracks, but then I'd, we'd go on overdub and fix parts and stuff like that. Ricky was incredibly patient. Um, but I mean, there's just moments. There are moments in the studio where things just happen. I remember Garth Brooks one time. Um, we were getting ready to pack up. We'd been recording early on, and he said, man, would you guys just mind? I've got this song. I think this is a really kind of stupid song, but I want to at least see what it sounds like. We just throw a quick demo down, and I remember Mark Cass Stevens wrote a chart real quick, because we never cut anything with Garth uh, from a demo. Mm -hmm. He always came in and strummed it on acoustic guitar, and then we, we made it up. and um, and. Mark Cass Stevens started playing this guitar riff, and you know, and then um, we started joining in. And all of a sudden, the producer said, "Hey, stop a minute, um, Mark, start that again." And he turned the recorder on, and it was a live take, and it became a huge hit. It was a song. It was a silly song called "Papa Loves Mama." 
written by uh, Kim Williams. And uh, but I mean, we were all just just going for it. We didn't care. We weren't sitting there going, "Hey, we're making a record." We were just sitting there thinking, "We're just throwing down a sketch of this music." And the Alan Reynolds, the genius that he was, and was smart enough to record it and realize, you know, that was it. Bruce's avocation may have indeed been his vocation, as he says later, but there were certainly other paths he could have taken. Here, Bruce talks about his work as a volunteer lobbyist for artists' rights and the challenging state of affairs for those, like his adult daughter, who try to make a living in the arts. Bruce also shares a conversation he had with Allison Krauss about the merits of having or not having a backup plan when you're pursuing a dream. The question of plan B or no plan B is also a topic of interest to me. And I'll be exploring that with other guests in future episodes. I remember in 2014, I was offered a job as a lobbyist in Washington. I had a, a lobbying firm said, you know, cause I've been going up there doing volunteer lobbying for intellectual property rights for musicians. I, I, I did a lot of work in the labor movement, trying to get union leadership ousted, you know, with the musicians union. I, I sort of was involved with a group that got rid of the New York, the Nashville and the national leadership and got new leadership in there. So I was going to Washington a lot and this guy who had this lobbying firm, Music First Coalition said, man, I'll pay you to come up here. And I was like, well, if I don't get the Garth tour, I'll consider it. Because at the time I was thinking, you know what, maybe I should branch out and do something else. I didn't take the job. You know, I don't have a college education. I said, I didn't go to college. He said, yeah, but you know more. You understand this better than half our lobbyists that we are giving a lot of money to. So I still think about stuff, but it, as I get older, I'm starting to go, you know what? You only have so long. I mean, it doesn't matter. You get, you age. I'm going to do the music thing for a while longer, as long as they'll have me. I'm fortunate enough that um, I had a career because, you know, I wrote, I, I also wrote a bunch of songs in the 90s because back then people sold records. I had one hit in the, in the 80s before country music exploded, which got me off the road. It was enough money to stay home and not tour. I was touring with Foster and Lloyd and I said, man, I'm going to make enough money that I can stay home, wait for the phone to ring. So I hung around and I get one or two calls a week to go do a demo session and all of a sudden I'm getting three calls a week and then all of a sudden I'm working every morning at 10 o'clock in the morning. So it was, a, it was a great run for a while, you know, where you could, I could take my family on vacations over Christmas. Most expensive time to go on vacations, but the only time you could sort of sneak out of town without missing work and know that I'd be working for the next four months. That was, that doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately you know, for musicians. Um, it's a lot harder thing. I mean, this country does not pay its creators. It's the only country in, in the industrialized world that doesn't pay musicians and artists for airplay and radio. Mm -hmm. And it's disgusting, but as we have talked before, we have the best Congress money can buy and the broadcasters, you know, the, the, the radio is owned by a very small percentage of people. I mean, they deregulated radio in the late 90s, so I think three corporations own about 80% of the radio market. Well, it's gonna to be tough, I mean, you know, because the problem with all this is it really is an affliction. 
I mean, you being a musician or being an artist. Being an artist. I mean, you know how it is, man. I mean, you you're in the visual arts, and you got, and you're also in the music. You dance in all those worlds, but you know, you kind of like, this is what I want to do. There was never any question to me that I wanted to play in bands and be a musician and be part of this. You see these kids that come to Belmont. Well, I'm gonna try this for five years, and if if it doesn't happen. I'm going to go to dental hygiene school or something. I talked to Alison Krauss one time, who, um, you know, I met when she was really young, when she first came to town. And, and I was just talking to her, and this was a while back, but I, I said, so well, what did your parents do? Where, where are you from? And she said, well, I was from Sh Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. My parents were both doctors. They were both teachers at, at the university. And I remember going to my mom and saying, I guess I ought to take advantage of the free tuition I'm going to get because, and, and so that I have a plan B. And her mother looked at her and said, no, you need to go to Nashville and become Allison Krauss because if you have a plan B, you're never going to achieve your plan A. So plan B, there are different schools of thought. Do you have a plan B or do not have a plan B? I didn't have a plan B. I didn't have one, and if I'd have had a plan B, I probably would have given up. I think I'm basically lazy, even though I've worked hard, but, you know. Uh, How do you counsel your daughter? Well, this is a hard thing because she was lucky enough to go to Stanford for both her undergrad and her graduate degree, and she's very involved in earth sciences and climate change and sustainability. She also runs a nonprofit based out of Nicaragua right now. and. Uh, but she's she's struggling with it because she's um, the world is very hard. I mean, you you have a young daughter. Um, for a young person to to even think they can buy a house, much less pay rent. Rents in Nashville are insane now. Half of, almost half of people's income just to, for housing. I mean, we've got fundamental problems in this country. Um, in the whole world, you know, so she sits there, she's struggling with the thing, well, okay, yeah, I've been offered these little tours and I can go out in a van and be a side person, play the same songs every night and for $150 a night and be driving in a van and hope we don't get in a car wreck because everybody's insane. And Or, you know, I can go do this startup because I've got this experience and these degrees and I have, I'm really knowledgeable about what's happening and and I say you know and she loves that that feeds her soul too you know for me had I not become a musician I probably would have become an attorney and gone into politics maybe I'd have been a politician maybe I'd been a behind the scenes guy and that stuff that still fascinates me but I'm not going to go back and get a degree and go to law school knowing what I know about the music business now and how how incredibly hard it is and the fact that Musicians and especially songwriters are just completely hosed by streaming. Streaming does not pay. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. Especially writers. Writers have been the biggest casualty of the modern music business because um, there's no publishing royalties. Right. No, I'm just kind of, I mean, I'd love to see her. She's a great bass player. Right. But for her to make, she probably would never make the kind of money I made. Right. 
you know, unless she had a band that just blew up and they were really smart and they'd go out and, you know, sell a bunch of tickets. But, but, but being a side person, you, there's no career as a session player, not a big career, not, you know. Um, Sounds like almost there is no answer. There is no answer. If I could tell young artists something now, if somebody would come to me now with what I know now, and not, not to be a preacher, not to, but, but I remember, you're lucky, you're, you're one of the chosen few if you're one of these guys that's lucky enough to be able to make money playing music, musician, whatever. So take care of your craft, take care of your art. If you can, don't drink. You know, alcohol is the most inefficient drug out there. It's a lot of fun, but the older you get, the longer you do it, and the more you do it, it's going to get you. I think alcohol and drugs can be, in partying, can be an incredible time suck if you're a musician especially, because if you, if you want to be a successful musician, you've got to practice a lot. You've got to keep practicing. You've got to be present to win. I say exercise. I, I, I wish I'd discovered yoga when I was younger. I didn't discover yoga until I was 58 years old, but it's a lifelong endeavor. You know, diet, I mean, it's just all that awareness. The talent's great, but you gotta be able to bring that talent every day. My avocation was my vocation, which is, I think that's a privilege in life. If you can have that, you should not take it for granted and you should cherish it. So you should, you know, try to take care of yourself. Pay attention, pay attention to people, love people. Anyway. There's no, anyway, that's it, it all comes to that. Cool. Thank you, Bruce Bowden. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hope I didn't babble too much. You babbled gold. You must be present to win. Don't know if you missed that little nugget, but please take that with you and nothing else. Good stuff from Bruce Bowden, folks. I appreciate him for talking with me and to you all for listening. Also, be sure to check out the official Grind and Flow playlist on YouTube and other outlets coming soon for a selection of Bruce Bowden influences, songs by people he mentions, and of course, Bruce's own work on tracks like Garth's Shameless. In fact, just go find that song right now, please. And FYI, the one track we were able to include featuring Bruce on Steel is playing right now. It's from a music project of mine with my longtime collaborator, Mark Kirby, called Radio Preacher. Hoping to share Radio Preacher music later this year and humbled that Bruce added his talents to one of our songs. And that's it for this episode of Grind and Flow. I'm Chuck Moore. Please join us on the socials. We'd love to hear from you and see you next time.